So far, the only remaining undefeated Pac-12 teams are USC and UCLA, the teams that ignited all the conference realignment talk this summer. Is that a problem for the Pac-12? Let's go. Our Locked On Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Pac-12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin, D1 play-by-play broadcaster. Thank you for making Locked On Pac-12 your first listen or your first view of the day if you're watching on YouTube, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Conference of Champions. Like, comment, subscribe, please, wherever you're listening to or watching the show. Thank you to everybody out there who has done so already. Today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. BetOnline has covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. BetOnline with a game starts. I got an interesting question the other day, and you too can get a question answered here on the show. Whatever team you want to ask about or about the conference writ large, by all means, you can hop in the YouTube comments. I monitor those daily. You can also DM me at smalls underscore 55 or at LO underscore pac 12 on Twitter, which is what kind of deep threat with two T's did. Kind of deep threat. Hmm. Sounds like me as a wide receiver in middle school. Kind of deep threat, but not really because I got no speed. Here's the question that he asks, and this is a really interesting one. What would be a worse storyline for the Pac-12 going into the summer? USC winning the Pac-12 in year one of Lincoln Riley? It would provide talking heads ammo to say just how weak of a position the Pac-12 was in. It would also stamp USC as transfer U and NILU. I think they've already got that label. Gaining more traction with transfers and elite high school recruits, leading to a bigger competition gap in the Pac-12 heading into the 2023 season? Or would it be worse if Oregon won the Pac-12 after getting demolished by Georgia? All summer, the narrative will turn into how large the gap is between the Pac-12 champ versus the other Power Four conference champs and how the conference as a whole is light years from the SEC. Thank you for reading my question. Fight on. Okay, lots of breakdown in there. First of all, the success of USC and UCLA this year as well. And at this point in time, with a showdown with Utah looming, they're worthy of putting into this conversation, the both of them, since both will be departing for the Big Ten in a couple years. I think on the one hand, there there is a negative perception element to having two of the best teams in the conference this year. There are five Pac-12 schools ranked, which is a great place for the conference to be. It's less ideal if you're George Klyovkov that two of them aren't going to be around in a couple of years. And Chip Kelly seems to finally have UCLA as at least a consistently competitive team. And he's only going to get that for a couple of years. And Lincoln Riley's turn USC around instantaneously. And that, of course, is going to the Big Ten as well. There is a little bit of that negative perception. But here's where it can help the Pac-12. If UCLA and USC, and how much it weighs this way versus that way, it, it, it's kind of hard to say. But this is the way I see it. If you have USC and UCLA be good and be Pac-12 contenders this year and next year in their last two years in the conference, if you're able to keep the Pac-10 together, the remaining schools that have not yet opted for conference realignment, though you never know, that could change at any time, what you have in UCLA and USC essentially for the remaining Pac-10 schools as you try to brand the conference and keep its legitimacy going forward as best you can is an opportunity for what essentially amount to non-conference wins. 
Because if UCLA, let's say they win nine or 10 games this year and USC wins 10 or 11 games this year when, when you're factoring in bowl season as well, then going into next year, they should both be good teams with with high expectations, though UCLA maybe a little less so because they won't have DTR for the first time since, I think, 2007. So what you would have is if Utah and Oregon and Washington or Washington State or, or anyone else who's remaining gets wins against those programs, then it helps a little bit, right? I'm not saying as much as it would if they had never left at all, of course. I, I don't think you can recoup that sort of, of legitimacy from a football perspective or basketball or, or just general perception. But I don't think it counts for nothing that if USC and UCLA are really good in the next couple of years, but they don't win the Pac-12 either year, I think that's a great place for the Pac-12 to be. It's maybe the best case scenario for for the Pac-12 is you have those schools be good and you have them be nationally relevant. But if they're not good enough in those seasons to win the conference, then you can look around at other programs that you're thinking of adding or talking to TV networks and say, yeah, these schools are leaving, but we still have some really strong football brands here because look, Oregon won it this year, Utah won it this year, Washington won it this year, whatever the case may be. So that's a fascinating dynamic to follow going forward. And of course, I'll keep talking about USC and UCLA as long as they're in the Pac-12 here on the show. Um, with regards to the comment, it would stamp USC as transfer you and NILU. I, I don't know how they didn't have that label already. I don't think that's changing a whole lot. And the widening competition gap when it comes to recruiting, that was already taking place with USC. It, it was already there. Once you inserted Lincoln Riley into that equation, whatever was happening on the field, yeah, it has an impact. But Lincoln Riley knows how to recruit. Now he's at USC. He's in Los Angeles. He was always going to be able to bring in more talent than any other program in the Pac-12. That, that was already the case. Whether or not he could do it on both sides of the ball, I think that kind of remains to be seen because you have Dan landing up at Oregon. You figure he'll be able to attract more high-level defensive recruits. But USC is going to have the most offensive talent in the conference. If they don't already at the skill positions, then certainly they would uh, probably next year or in the coming years had they had they decided to stay. Um, but on on the, the 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 other portion of of your question here, would it be bad for Oregon to win the Pac-12, seeing how they performed against Georgia? No, I think if you're George Klyovkov, you want anyone to win the Pac-12 that isn't USC or UCLA. Having them good helps, like I mentioned, but if Oregon wins the Pac-12 and teams at the end of the year are generally better than they were at, at the start of the year, but that can apply to Georgia too. Even though they've stumbled a little in the last couple of weeks, they're still a really, really good football team. Nobody plays 12 perfect weeks of college football. That's a complete and utter myth. That does not happen for any team in any season. Teams go undefeated, but they have close games or they have weeks where they don't play well. They underperform, whatever the case may be. I'm on the train that Georgia is still a really good football team. But anyway, if Oregon wins the Pac-12, then what you would have if you're George Klyovkov is probably the most recognizable national brand in Oregon. Utah and, and Washington are certainly in that conversation as well, but you'd have them as your conference champion. And then if Utah were to win it, this year or next year, and Oregon the other year, and you're able to keep them in the Pac-10, 
well, then the perception of who you're losing is not quite as damaged as it would have been if UCLA or USC wins the conference this year or next year. So I don't think it's that much of, I don't think it's a downside at all from a conference perspective if Oregon wins the Pac-12 because the the question that that kind of deep threat is is posing here is well isn't that just going to highlight the gap between you know the SEC and the you know the the difference between the Pac-12 champ and the other four conference champs the gap between the conferences that are not named the SEC and the Pac-12 can be closed much more easily than the Pac-12 and the SEC because we've seen Pac-12 teams beat a Big 10 an ACC a Big 12 opponent before that 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 has happened, but the SEC is seen as the best conference in the country because it consistently is. And so, if Oregon were to win the Pac-12 or even Florida, for instance, and and teams look at that and say, "Well, look how they performed against the SEC," that's not radically shifting the perception of the Pac-12 because we already have that feeling. That's why those non-conference games are important, why we pay attention to them. But that perception and general understanding, whether it's amongst fans and media members on the West Coast, in the South, or on the East Coast, or anywhere in between, it already exists because the difference between the SEC and the Pac-12 is already so stark. And is it harder to close that gap without a Lincoln-Riley-led USC? Yes, it absolutely is. But does it change how the conference, I, I, I think, is viewed or what the credibility of the, the football league in the Pac-12 is nationally if you have one of those teams win, right? If you have an Oregon or a Utah win with that with those SEC losses in games that did not go the way their fan bases were hoping going into it for different reasons, Oregon should have been competitive, Utah should have won the game. No, I, I don't think that it that it stretches that that mental perception for people uh more more than it already is. Uh I think I got to every component in uh, in your question there. I just wanted to double check, but keep them coming. I love mailbag questions, and that is a really, really interesting one. So thank you, kind of deep threat. And thank you to Nissan for being the newest sponsor here at the Locked On Network. They're creating a new segment here at the Locked On Network, Thrilling Moments, where we highlight the most exciting play from across the Pac-12 or throughout the last several years even, perhaps, but we'll be doing it on a weekly basis. This week's thrilling moment comes from UCLA's quarterback. Dorian Thompson-Robinson had two plays that count for our Nissan thrilling moment of the week, both using his legs, of course, something he is prolific at doing, the big hurdle, and then the juke that caused two defenders to go crashing into one another as he calmly steps into the end zone and struts to the back to celebrate with teammates and fans. That was about as thrilling of a moment as as you're going to see in the Pac-12 over the weekend. The both the both of them, Dorian Thompson, Robin's legs, definitely this week's Nissan thrilling moment. This segment has been inspired by the thrilling new designs featured across Nissan's new lineup of vehicles. Pursue what thrills you in the all-new Frontier Armada or Pathfinder today. Available available now at NissanUSA.com. All right, let's get to the next segment of the show. And uh, I saw a list of Colorado coaching candidates. And I got to go through because some of them I think could be all right. And some of them, I just want it on the record that I'm not not going to be in that particular camp. 
Uh, if you want to ask a question about this, any of Buff fans out there, go back to the start of the show. A lot of ways to get a question answered uh, talking about Colorado, which is uh, now looking for a new football coach. So I was looking at a, a piece on uh, Buffalo's Wire at USA Today, and they were they were listing potential coaching candidates. And this was, I think, just prior to Paul Chris getting fired at Wisconsin. That's my top choice for Colorado. When you're talking about a coach who would take the job, a coach who would fit and who I think could have success there, I think Paul Chris checks all of those boxes. Because if you're Colorado, sure, you could look and say, well, you know, maybe you'd want to look at uh, a Todd Munkin at Georgia or a Deion Sanders at, at, at Jackson State, something like that. Yeah, you might take either of those guys, but would they go to Colorado? That's a different question. So let's go through this list. Paul Chris is my number one guy for for the Colorado job. I don't think I have quite as strong of a sense on on ASU at this point in time. I think Bill O'Brien would be a, a decent hire. He had a successful run at Penn State while they were undergoing and recovering from a, a scandal, by the way. So some some history there. Um, but a, ASU definitely needs, I think, a CEO, a guy who can run a tight orderly ship and help get it back on track rather than an upstart coordinator. Like I've seen Oregon's Kenny Dillingham get thrown around in there. He's 32 years old. I don't think that's someone who, even though he appears to have some offensive chops as a play caller and could one day be ready to be a head coach. I don't know if that's a great fit over at ASU to have to get the program through an NCAA investigation and come out of the dark, dark days for your first head coaching job. I think that's tough. I think you need someone who's been a head coach before and who's done it. I think Bill O'Brien would be a, a pretty good choice there. But so Colorado, per this Buffalo's Wire piece at USA Today, uh, they listed a number of candidates. Bill O'Brien was among them. Yeah, you, you, you'd take him if you could get him. The thing about Bill O'Brien at Colorado, could he have success? Sure. I, I think theoretically he could have success at, at any Power 5 school because he's shown an ability to win a lot of football games as, as a head coach. And he's gone to Coach Rehab U, which is Nick Saban's offensive coordinator slot. There was Lane Kiffin, Steve Sarkeesian, now Bill O'Brien hoping to be the, the latest, plus all the DCs that he's had be head coaches across the country. I don't know if Bill O'Brien would stay, but if you're Colorado, you just have to ask yourself. If you're thinking, yeah, I'd want Bill O'Brien to be a head, a head coach for, for, for the Buffaloes. Are you okay with the possibility of him staying for just maybe even two to three years, having a lot of success and leaving for an SEC or Big Ten job. Because I think at Colorado, that possibility is very real. Is it there at Arizona State as well? Yes. But do I think it's quite as likely? Maybe not. But I don't think he'd stay longer than maybe four years at, at either school. But Colorado just seems right, especially if he would have a lot of success in one year, then his name would be flying up a list of resumes that or a list of candidates that, that other schools would be looking for like Colorado. Let's say they go one in 11 this year, which is what I predicted prior to the season. I might've overshot the mark in giving them a win. I really hope that's not the case. Let's say you hire Bill O'Brien. He comes in and he wins five games in the first year. That's a dramatic one year turnaround and programs take notice of that. And I don't know if Colorado has the pedigree or the administrative investment, as we saw with Mel Tucker, to commit to him to convince him to stay for for more than just a little while. So 
that's an option. I think it's more fitting at, at ASU. Um, but for Colorado, this piece also listed uh, Illinois defense coordinator Ryan Walters. Here's the problem I have with that. Their defense is really, really good. Their, their defense at Illinois, I think statistically, is like the best in the country for scoring defense. They just went in and smacked Wisconsin. He's a big reason why. So I understand why he's a candidate there. But Colorado's offense can't do anything at all. And that's been what has held them back the last couple of years. The defense hasn't been stellar. I'm not arguing that point, but it kind of feels like they need to go with someone who could come in and just score some points and at least get them excited about something, right? I mean, look at Arizona and Jed Fish. They lose that game at Cal last week, 49 to 31. Or was that the week before? I don't know. Everything's kind of blurring together. Last week, Cal was at Washington State. So that was the week before. They lose 49 to 31. When you're rebuilding a program, if you lose 49 to 31, you've got things to be optimistic about because you put up 31 points on a good defensive coach in Justin Wilcox. Arizona's defense still has a long way to go, but people buy into a rebuild quicker when they see results on the offensive side because a bad offense is a lot harder to watch than a bad defense. That's that's my hesitation there with Ryan Walters. He, uh, I believe, played at, at Colorado. So that that's certainly why his name gets thrown around. And homecoming hires, sometimes they work. Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, Jonathan Smith at Oregon State. Sometimes they're Scott Frost at Nebraska or the, the early returns for Mario Cristobal at Miami, though I think he'll be fine. There's an added level of pressure when you're coaching at your alma mater that sometimes coaches aren't able to get over the hump for. Uh, another one, Air Force head coach Troy Calhoun runs the triple option. He'd have to make that jump from you, you can't run that at the power five level. It just it works for the military schools. I get it. But at the power five level, it's just not going to work because you have too good of athletes on the other side, no matter what conference you're in. So he'd have to make that jump. I again, I'm not crazy about that because I don't want the head coach learning how to institute a new offensive philosophy while he's transitioning your, your program, hopefully to, to brighter pastures. Not the worst hire because he, he has won a lot of football games there, but I don't, I don't necessarily love that. Marcus Arroyo got thrown out in there. The UNLV head coach, former Oregon offensive coordinator. No, not, not, not a place that you should be going. I think if you're Colorado, you got to be aiming higher there. North Dakota state head coach, Matt Entz. That is the Alabama of FCS football. For those of you who don't know, he's won something like five, four. He's won a lot of national championships at the FCS level. They are absolutely dominant. To me, what that shows is he for sure has in-game coaching chops. He, he knows what to do there. I like someone who's been a head coach before for, for this Colorado situation. So that on that front, I don't, I don't hate it. But the thing is that North Dakota State, you, you kind of have it made in that sense. He didn't take over as a head coach at a time when they, when they were down, right? He's had a lot of success, and he deserves credit for that. And could you do a lot worse than that hire? Yeah, I think so. But ideally, you, you'd want to look at someone, if you're Colorado, who has experience rebuilding a program 
And Entz has done a lot of really good things in North Dakota State. I don't know if he's ready for that. That like that that's that's a big that's a big leap to make. There's a couple more candidates that 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 I want to get to that have been thrown out for this Colorado job. And you could potentially bet who that candidate may eventually or who may turn into the next head coach, go from candidate to coach. You could do that using Bet Online, your number one source for football betting info this season. Find all the latest player developments, team matchups, news, podcasts, and in-depth articles and analysis on every game you can find. And as always, Bet Online remains your continued source for all your sport wagering information with live betting and up to the minute scores for every sport out there. The fastest and easiest way to check in on all your favorite games and events, including Major League Baseball, Go Mariners, MMA, Boxing, and my personal favorite, Golf. Head to betonline.net or use your mobile device to learn more. Bet Online, where the game starts. So, continuing with this list of uh, Colorado coaches, or potential Colorado coaches, I should say. That, that Buffalo's wire at USA Today threw out there. Georgia offensive coordinator Todd Munkin. That's an intriguing hire. Of all the names I've gone through on this list, that is an intriguing hire to me. Now, Colorado fans probably going to have some PTSD hiring a Georgia coordinator because the last time they did that, it was Mel Tucker. And I don't need to go down that rabbit hole once again. But that's a guy who's done a lot of good things offensively and has made Stetson Bennett into a national championship winning quarterback. And he was a walk-on Stetson Bennett is a really good college quarterback. He continues to be underrated though, maybe showing some of his limitations in the last couple of weeks, but still he's quite good, but he wasn't supposed to be that. And he has become that you got to credit the offensive coordinator in that sense. That's an intriguing hire. Here's the name that gets thrown out a lot. Eric B Colorado guy, been the OC before. He's been standing next to Andy Reid since, I'm pretty sure since he took over the Chiefs job in whatever year that was, maybe like 2013, 14, somewhere in there. So he's been around a sharp offensive mind. The question with Eric Bieniemy is, does he really want to come back to college? And does he want to and know how to recruit? Because Colorado is not a place where it is easy to recruit. So you have to be all in on, on that grind. You have to be all in on this is a part of my job that is essential, not just showing up on game days. Could he have the X's and O's chops to do it? Yeah, sure. Not, not going to argue with you there. Andy Reid is a brilliant coach and a brilliant offensive mind. The two seasons he was the offensive coordinator in 2011 and 2012 didn't go very well, so it'd be kind of a second chance. The The question I'd want to answer there is, what's his philosophy on recruiting? Could he put together a staff that knows how to recruit and bring in the sorts of players that, that Colorado would need? Last two names on this list, we talked about him uh, already a little bit, including yesterday on the show. Alex Grinch, not, not, not a fan, at least yet. Maybe in a couple of years I'll feel differently, but right now that it's not a higher USC's defense coordinator. And then Deion Sanders, I don't think he goes to Colorado anyway. I think he's on there because he's a perennial name to throw out anytime a power five job becomes available. But I think he'd take Arizona State before he took Colorado. And I don't even know if he would look in that direction. Um, so I, I, I don't think either of those names are, are particularly likely. Um, but of everybody that, that that list turned out there, Sure, I think Bill O'Brien could do well. I, I think Todd Munkin is intriguing, but I bet Bust fans will have reservations on that because of what happened with uh, with Mel Tucker. 
Okay, Washington and Oregon State are in very similar situations as we shift gears and move back to the uh, the football that will be on the field this week in the third week of uh, conference play. So both of them are coming off of disappointing road performances in which they lost to top 15 teams. Both of them are also back on the road this week against inferior opponents. Washington is at Arizona State, where they're a two-touchdown favorite, should be able to win comfortably. Oregon State is at Stanford. They're just a seven-point favorite. And I think that discrepancy in those two lines is indicative of one thing and one thing only. Oregon State's quarterback play for the last couple of weeks has been, let's put it politely and say shaky, and if I put it honestly, it's been abysmal. So I'm not worried about either team right now. I, I am not. My level of concern is higher for the Beavs than for the Huskies. But to both fan bases, if you're an Oregon State fan or Washington fan, you listen to or watch the show, thank you for doing that. But I've got a message for you. It is not time to worry. It is not time to panic. Kalen DeBoer is off to a great start. No, that was not a good game. But ask yourself this. If you're frustrated about how that game went, like, oh, we should have played better. Yes, they should have. Do you think Michael Penix, after how he looked in the first four weeks, and remember, he's not going to play on the road every week as the season goes on. Do you think he's going to throw two interceptions again in another game? He may do it one other time, but that's probably going to be it. Oregon State has a higher level of concern because of the quarterback situation. But Washington, Michael Penix is still healthy. He had a bad game. Did you expect him or the team to have 12 perfect games here in the season? I know it looked that way after they played basically four perfect games to begin the year, but they're finally away from home. They're learning what that feels like. And when you're on the road, things are different. Things are tougher. It looks different. It feels different. You, you warm up differently because your schedule is not what it has been the previous month when Washington played their first four games at home. They were not going to go 12-0. and 0. The defense was not going to be lights out every week, and Chip Kelly and UCLA know how to score a lot of points. It's one of the best offenses in the Pac-12 for the last couple of seasons. Like, yes, the defense has areas to improve upon, but do you not think that this coaching staff can make adjustments? Do you not think the they can make improvements, that they can get better. I don't think it's panic time at all for Washington. And notice, I'm not the only person who feels that way because they weren't dropped out of the top 25. They're still sitting at 4-1. and one. They're 1-1 one and one in conference play. They should be 2-1 and one after this week's game on the road in Tempe against the Sun Devils, who are just down in every which way. And you have a big chance this week because you can prove to yourselves that you know how to play well on the road. They haven't done that yet, but they've only had one try. And remember, this Washington team was 4-8 and eight a year ago, and Kalen DeBoer, the rebuild is well underway. I mean, they, they've all, all but arrived as a team to contend with in the Pac-12. And yeah, they got a little bit of a wake-up call at UCLA, but UCLA is also a good team. We thought they would be coming into the year, and they're off to a good start. Wasn't a perfect start through the first three games, but UCLA played very well. They were at home. And if that game is in Seattle, it's probably a different story. 
So Washington's defense can make adjustments, can get better. I don't think Penix is going to throw two interceptions on consecutive drives. I'm pretty sure it was, or two and three possessions, whatever the case, whatever the case was there in that first half. I don't think that's going to happen again because I watched him shred four opponents in a row to begin the season. So one bad week, not time for concern. Oregon State, brutal schedule. Just, I mean, that's if Beaver fans are upset that they had to play USC and then at Utah, you got every right to be. You got every right to be. That's a brutal scheduling break. If you'd played USC at home and then gotten to play Stanford before going at Utah, it might have been a different story. Or if you'd gotten a Cal or an Arizona or a Colorado or someone who is not, I don't know, maybe the best team in the conference on the road the week after you were that close to pulling a top 10 upset at home in a game you should have won where you were hyped going in, you expended a lot of emotional energy, it was a hard-fought game, you led for most of it, and then you lost. That's a crushing place to be as a football team. And then you have to go to what is probably the toughest place to win, the first or second hardest place to win in the conference given the environment and the opponent at Utah. That's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. But Beaver fans have got to play the long game here. They, they've got to be patient and trust that this team, under a fifth-year head coach in Jonathan Smith, can get back to where they were through the first three weeks. When they look like the team, I thought they might be coming into the year. I am not selling my Beaver stock. They go on the road this week and lose to Stanford, no matter who's playing quarterback, okay, then it'll be time for concern. But Washington and Oregon State, they're in the same spot. Top 15 road losses. It was disappointing, but it is not time to declare that the sky is falling or that the season is over or that neither can still achieve the goals that they had coming into this year. I appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time and have a wonderful rest of your day.